0: Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Karen Levis. She's an author and professor. Her new book is Ida Always. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Karen. Thanks for having me. Well, you are a professor at the New School. You have an MFA, Creative Writing. That's what you teach for uh, the children's program. And your book, which is what we're going to be talking about today, Ida, always, has been described in the New York Times Book Review as an example of children's books at their best. So um, that's quite an accolade. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I fell off my chair a few times when I read that, for sure. It was really and, and I also want to wonderful. add that you also are a candidate for an MSW because, um, as yes. you know, this is, yeah. <laughs> so, congratulations. And that's
1: why when I saw that this is you doing this interview, I was like,
0: okay, if anyone's going to understand <laughs> where I'm at it's a right perfect now, it'll fit. Yeah. yeah, well, I'll just say, I, I just and then I'm going to let you talk, obviously. But your book, mm-hmm. I read it, I cried. I mean, it's such a moving book. Uh, it's for kids, it's for parents, it's it's for actually for professionals uh, as well. So tell us, Ida Always, what what is it about and and um, mm-hmm. you know give us a, a brief description.
1: Sure. So um, Ida Always, it's a picture book and it's illustrated by the amazing Charles Santoso. And so it is inspired by the real story of the Central Park polar bears, Gus and Ida, who live together. Um, in the book, what happens is we meet Gus and Ida, who live in a big park in the middle of a big city, and we follow them and we kind of learn what they love about being together and their friendship and their city. Um, and then we learn, um, along with Gus and and with Ida as well, that Ida is ill, um, and she's actually terminally ill, Um, and the bears learn that um, Ida's going to die, and so we follow sort of their emotions and how they face that together, and then after Ida passes, we um, get to observe how Gus, um, you know, takes the news and how he kind of then finds a new way to, you know, keep the love of his friend with him as he moves forward. So, um, so that's we, sort of how the story story goes, and then um, you know it is based on this true story, but it um, it is fictional.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, so it's fictional, and you say it's based on the true story, Karen. So that was the inspiration behind the book. Are you talking about two real polar bears that were in? I, I'm assuming it's Central Park, New York City, um, and yep. that, that that was a real story about two bears and and their relationship, and and then the death of yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, so Gus
1: and Ida were polar bears who were kind of iconic in Central Park for um, many, many years. Um, and, in, you know, in they did live out their lifespans. Um, in fact, I think they exceeded them. Um, and so, so, like, millions of people visited them, and Ida was known as sort of the ambassador polar bear, I think, because um, a lot of people became interested in, you know, the situations of um, polar bears in the wild through her. Um, and so there were some news stories after... Um, When she passed, and people sort of really flocked, they were concerned about Gus. Um, There were articles where there were interviews with visitors who just remarked that they saw him mourning and grieving, and so it was sort of this interest in how animals also grieve and mourn, and also I thought it was very interesting in the reaction that so many people wanted to go um, and see him and care um, about it also, I thought, reflected how universal that feeling is and how it's so instantly understood by everyone and how when we see somebody going through that, we want to, you know, we, we have a very strong
0: emotional reaction. Yeah, we want to be there. We want to empathize with them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes as adults, we don't quite know how to do it and, uh, right. and afraid of saying the wrong thing and we're not real spontaneous about it. But did you know, I mean, did you know when Ida or were you familiar <laughs> with her? Have you seen these animals before? Yeah,
1: I grew up in New York City, um, not too far away from the park, so I'd definitely seen them. Um, And then I once, um, so the the story came in terms of, I'd actually been sort of in my um, list of potential things I wanted to tackle in a picture book. Loss was one of them. Um, And so um, uh, my friend and an editor who knew this had sent me one of the articles um, that came out after Ida had passed, and so kind of those two things came together, and it seemed like the right the right thing to do and so then I visited Gus again as I was sort of considering um how I might approach the story and i and I went to see him um and hung out with him a bit and got to actually speak to um one of the zookeepers and just learn a little bit more just and you know this became fictional, but I just sort of you know wanted to to have it infused with with their story and and certainly the setting because um Though so it doesn't, it's not New York City specific. Once we're in the book, but it was very informed. I wanted to get the sense of what they could
0: see and what they could sense potentially, you know, from where they were. When you talk about loss, what I mean was that something um, because you're young. Um, I see you graduated mm-hmm. from Tufts University. I had one of my sons graduate. That kind. From...
1: I don't know if I'm that young.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're on the younger side, so I mm-hmm. guess uh, you know loss, bereavement, grief. Obviously, you know that's what this is all mm-hmm. about. But <clears throat> Why loss? Why, I mean, what sort of connected you to that? Why were you interested right. in that? Yeah. Well, I think, um,
1: it's funny, my, my first book was like a very direct, there was like a conversation that sparked it. Um, this one was more of, there's, there's more a few pieces coming together, and so I think it was a combination of, um, I've always, I think something that's in all, in all, most of my ideas tend to be, I'm very interested in the things, sort of what you were talking about, the things that we as adults are afraid to talk about with kids that from my observation and working with kids for so long, um, kids aren't afraid until they learn to be and are actually very curious and creative to, they want to know what all these emotions are and mean, um, and, and loss in particular. So I was working years ago, um, I have some really strong memories, um, one in particular of watching a group of kindergartners, um, find an insect in the yard and the insect died and then they held completely spontaneous and all on their own. They held a funeral. They created a make-believe funeral. Um, they set up benches. Um, one of the kids who had been to an actual funeral, um, got up and sort of helped guide them and said, now we, now we all talk and say nice things about the bug. Um, now we can cry if we want. And so, so, I've always just been really interested in, you know, I think that they really want to explore these things. And the thing about loss is that it's everywhere. And so we kind of like to think that kids don't experience death. Um, But even if a child um, doesn't experience it in their near immediate world, um, they're seeing, you know, other people, they're seeing, you know, their parent lose somebody, um, their ha- friend in school has lost a grandparent, they're seeing an insect in yard and they're curious about what that is. So that's always interested me. And then, um, and then what happened then sort of while I was writing, um, my first book, which is called Stuck with the Blues and deals with sadness, um, I was doing school visits and working in schools as an arts educator, and people knew that this book was coming out. Um, and then after it came out, I was doing visits, and people, teachers and parents who knew me were actually directly asking, have you ever thought about writing a book about death or about bereavement? Um, because I, my kid, our cat died, and I don't know what to say. Or um, or on the opposite, you know, the more, the more intense, and, you know, there were, there were teachers who had um, students who had lost um, a parent or a sibling and, you know, wanted, wanted um, you know, a little bit of help in talking because it is
0: such a scary and hard thing to talk about with little I kids. Think, I think so it's, it's a cultural it's, thing, too. Yeah. I don't know if that's been your experience, but particularly yes, yeah. in our culture in the United States, anyway, uh, we don't like to talk mm-hmm. about loss, and it's also a loss of control. I think it's associated with a lot of things. But I, I just want to ask you, and I've had a few guests on the show, and I've, I've asked this question when we've discussed this topic, but when you you, you talked, you, you said, the, uh, maybe when you were talking about one of the polar bears, that they passed, mm-hmm. and using the word passed instead of died, it see, always seems to me as sort of like skirting the yes. issue also, and I, I wonder why. Yeah.
1: I agree, and I think, um, I think sometimes, and I notice it when I do it here, and I think what I tend to do now when I talk about it is I alternate um, so I'll use died, and then I'll use past, maybe like the next sentence. And part of that is just, yeah, it's, it's really hard. So as I was writing it, as I was writing the book, I was trying so hard to avoid, right, euphemisms or anything because I do know, and I've, you know, and I've certainly learned more about this now that I'm in, um, getting my social work degree, but I, but I knew it anyway, just from seeing it that, you know, we try and soften things by saying, oh, you know, grandma just went to sleep. Um and then I know, you know, kids can be very literal and that actually the thing that we think is making it less scary is actually more scary because then a lot of times they might be afraid um for their parents to go to sleep or for themselves to go to sleep. So I really tried hard but what you said about the culture is so interesting because even me sitting down very purposely wanting to write something that didn't shy away from it language wise and was frank and honest about it, there were a couple of times when I was revising that I was like, Oh, there I I sort of did it there, and even though I didn't mean to, because it's—I think it's so ingrained enough to soften it and to shy away from it. Um, yep. And I also like past. I'm not—I'm not a huge fan of it either. But I also—I think it's a little bit more, at least for adult audience. I, I don't know if I would use it as much with kids because I know right now somebody listening—they know what I mean by that. But um, yeah, it was Quite, really hard. That was what was hard about writing this is I really wanted to use, and I—and that was at one point a revision. Somebody, you know, questioned, did I really want to say died? Was it too much? And I was like, No, I want to say die,
0: Um, because I think yeah, if if you can't give it the proper name or label, then you're you as you say not only you're dealing with something else, and I think you brought up a really good point, it can be very confusing to children. If you say go to sleep, they're terrified to go to sleep because they're afraid that maybe they will die or their siblings exactly. will die. So you add to the confusion. I mean, it's sort of like the, the, the truth is the truth, and, and, it, and in the end, even though it's maybe painful, but at least you're dealing with the real emotion. And, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's tricky, though, how to, like, because you still, it, you still want to be gentle when
1: you're talking about this with kids, I don't, you know, when people, you know, that's of course, we want to be gentle, but so I think for me in the, in the book, in the language of the book, I was really trying to find that line with being really frank and honest um, and yet being gentle, and, um, which, is, which is hard, and that's why I think it's hard for adults often to, to talk about these things with kids is because it feels, it feels so harsh, and so I have a line in the book actually where I think I say that, I think I say, you know, Sonia says, Um, that she's going to die, and she says it softly, but the words felt rough to Gus. And so I think that's where I was trying to kind of, you know, acknowledge that these words, yes, they can feel harsh, but they're also, you know, they're real, and and we need to say them.
0: um, And I think another thing, and and, uh, maybe you kind of feel that from your book, if you are talking to children about death and dying, hopefully you're doing it, in a nurturing context, so, I mean, Mm -hmm. and children take that in as well, so, um, which is, you know, which is all part of it, which is obviously important, but, now, uh, and I also know, I mean, you were, you you mentioned just briefly, you had internships, and you've worked with bereavement groups, Uh, when you work with your bereavement groups, are you working with groups, are these adults, families, children separately, or what kind of
1: groups? So what I'm doing right now is, and this is, I'm currently finishing. So I'm, this is actually what I'm doing for my internship for my, for my master's. So I'm at the Jewish board um, in New York agency and where I'm in the child and adolescent loss and bereavement program. So that program is specifically goes into schools um, or, or, you know, maybe another um, uh, community uh, organization and, and meets with groups of children. Um, so it'll be a group of children who have had, and that's for kids who have had a significant loss, Um, and then ideally sometimes there will be um, concurrent parent groups as well so that somebody else is meeting with the parents um, to work with them, and so, you know, and the idea behind working with groups of kids is is sort of similar. It's to, I mean, there's a lot of things you're trying to, you know, accomplish, but um, a lot of having them together in part is to, um, you know, take away the isolation that comes a lot for people, because we don't talk about this in our culture, so pe- so kids can feel, this is I'm the only one this has happened to, and that all the feelings I'm having are, you know, on top of the feelings being really, you know, big and new and something to grapple with, and on top of that, there's often the, um, you know, I feel strange or, you know, people will not understand me if I say this. So having that in the group, um, one of the things I'm seeing is just, you know, the relief that comes from... I'm talking about it, and seeing that this, that other kids and other people have have these feelings, even, um, and and are dealing with it. So that's yeah, I think that's. I
0: mean, when you're talking about support groups. They uh, they've always worked. I think, at least in my opinion, for adults, and and you're saying that does for children too. And just to sort of hone in on what you said, and I think it's so important. I, I remember at seven years old, my grandmother died. I think that was second mm-hmm. grade, and going to school after the you know funeral or few days later, and sitting there thinking, I mean, this is many years ago, like, nobody knows how I'm feeling because their grandmother didn't die, and yeah. I'm really sad, and I wish there, and really, just as you're describing it, feeling that way, um, so it, it really is important and, you know, for kids to be able to sit and yeah. talk to their children, yeah. And that's, I think, one of the things, you know, I, I wanted to write the book,
1: um, you know, hopefully to work on two levels, like you said, like, you know, potentially, I mean, I'd love it if obviously, you know, if, you know, people in the profession found it useful to work with kids who are, you know, experiencing bereavement. Um, and I also just wanted it to add to just the normalization of talking about it so that, you know, you as a community member, when if you have a friend or somebody in your community where that's happened to, you feel a little bit less afraid about, you know, um, about it just being there um, and that it just becomes a little bit, Maybe more, you know, a part of the everyday, and and to also I think um, realize it's a you know we're afraid of it because we're afraid of being sad I think so much and and all these just huge feelings you know are so scary and afraid of
0: our own mortality as well, or our own yeah
1: <laughs> yeah exactly so one of the things that have been like really nice like some of the I've gotten some now um, you know notes and reactions from it and I really. Um, I had a couple of people write and just kind of say that, you know, in reading the book and feeling like getting sad and actually crying during it was a really helpful experience because it showed that like, okay, I can have these feelings, you know, like, and this is what that experience is like. Um, and so to me, it's, you know, the more we kind of let it be out in the open, we can be there to support each other. And also, you know, it's, it's okay to to feel these things and then be able to help each other through it. Um, so I did, I did want, you know, to give that experience sort of like you said, in a safe environment, like in a picture book where you're most likely going to be reading this with some, you know, with um, a grown-up, um, someone to, to be there with you and have those feelings in sort of a safe environment. So that way, you know, when you encounter it in real life, it's not new. It's
0: something you've you know, you've had a little bit of before. Yes, a little bit of experience. This book, mm-hmm. you know, after reading it, I thought this would be a, a great book to have in Ronald McDonald houses. Because, oh. Yeah. That's
2: a thought, sure. <laughs> get out yeah, there and
0: get because them and,
1: yeah. I mean, that's, Yeah, and that is the kind of thing, because I do, I really do, yeah, I mean, I... I really just want it to be useful in that way, you know, where it becomes just sort of okay, this is something we talk about, and oh, we can talk about it you know, and now we have a language of it and i and so I have a guide that will be coming out really soon that's free that goes along with it that's that's there to help you know um, that has activities to do together with with the kid and some um and some more just informational things about um, sort of the language of loss and and how children grieve and things like that. Um, so that if caregivers want some, you know, more to be able to go into a little bit more death and have a little, a little bit more support, um, that's there. And so that it can be enjoyable too. Cause that's, that's the thing that I learned from kids, you know, and watching those kids create that funeral, um, and other conversations I've had with kids about losses. They can, they can, you know, you can be creative and, and the work that I've learned through, um, through my, through working with the loss and bereavement program is that really, you know, we're using a lot of expressive arts and things like that. So, so it's a creative, um, approach and there can be joy and there can be, you know, there can be all of that, um, with it as you, as you help guide them through whether it's a child who's grieving or whether you're just trying to help a class understand what happened to the, to the class hamster.
0: You know. Talk to us, what happened, uh, talk to us, or what about the kids, what have they given to you? I guess maybe one of, maybe in the context of like the the groups, you know, working with these kids, like mm-hmm. um, maybe the most difficult situation you've been in, in when, when you've run one of these groups, or you've been one of, part of these bereavement groups with the children, any,
1: um, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm really, this is, this is something I'm just doing this year. I've worked with kids for like 15 years in other capacities and social emotional learning um, things. So, um, so right now I think it's just, um, I mean, I'm mostly just learning from them really just by seeing, by just meeting wherever they are and just really trying to follow. And I think it's been sort of giving me more evidence, I think, of something that I had started to learn, where it's like you can really trust kids to let you know what they need, um, and to let you know, you know, where they want to go and where they where they maybe want to wait and pause, um, if you they really if you really like listen, and that's been really important. So there might be times um, since this is new for me. And the other things I've done have been a little bit more distance. I did sort of drama therapy, based uh, work, um, that went into school groups. Um, so this for me has been seeing, it's actually interesting cause I'm right. My intellectually, I said, we can talk about this with kids, but this is the first time I'm really doing these, these groups. Like, um, and so I'm actually saying, Oh yes, you really can. You really can talk about these things with kids you, because even me, here I am saying, you know, this is what we should do, but I'm still, you know, you, me you is still struggle with, with it too, as well. I still grapple with, you know, should we bring, should I bring this up? Should I back off right now? Where's that line of, you know, in terms of helping them talk about something and also not, um, you know, Bringing them to it too quickly or making them too overwhelmed. So I think that's been. You I know, think he's watching, watching, watching my own rule. You know, kind of watching me sort of following my own belief.
0: <laughs> well, I think, I, and also I, I think that kids have an ability to be able to. They have a kind of a pretty good barometer for themselves, and they know when to go on to next. I mean, they're you mm-hmm. know they don't stay stuck in the same way. I think that adults do sometimes. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, and so that's a good thing, yeah. you know, if it becomes too much for them or whatever the emotions are, they're able to go on to next, um, I think, yeah, more exactly. easily than we can, yeah, which is a good thing.
1: Yeah,
0: What's and the that was name? one of the things that, yeah, yeah sorry, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. I was
1: saying that was like one of the, so one of the things I put into the I'd Always Guide was sort of like as a suggestion, if you're, you know, as a, If you're reading with a kid and you're worried, is this going to be, when are they, is to simply let them be in charge of turning the pages, right? Which I feel like is sort of similar to what we're talking about, letting the kid tell you. And they'll let you know which pages they want to sit and just stare at for a while because they're, you know kind of thinking about it or imagining, and they'll let you know which pages they might want to go more quickly through and come back to later,
0: you know. Yeah. Um, and that and that's come like back one to simple, later is an important point, uh, a really important point, point, I think, because, as you say, they're having the book read to them or they can read it themselves and they quickly turn the page and you think that, you know, it got by them. But I know as a mother, uh, you know, a week later they may say to you, they you 'll know, ask a question mm-hmm. about that very thing because then they 're ready you know they 've molded over whatever they 've done with that feeling, then they 're ready to talk about it, maybe not at that moment yeah but yeah
1: Ex- exactly I just, so one of my the so one of the first notes I got and just made me um, everybody keeps telling me that the story is making them tear up, and so then i've been getting these emails where now the readers are making me tear up but, um, <laughs> but it was really wonderful i got a I got a really wonderful letter from um a mother who. Um, And she's actually a bookseller as well. And she had read the book and she told me about her six-year-old who has been very actively not wanting to be sad and not wanting to read or watch things that make her feel sad. And so she wasn't intending to give her this book because she knew that, but the child found it and sort of insisted on reading it and and got very sad and cried and apparently immediately wanted to read it again and has been reading it every day, (laughs) um, bringing it into, bringing it into school. She wrote me the other day and said she wouldn't, she wouldn't come home until she'd read it to her friends. And so that is sort of, you know, that, um, and that to me also shows that clearly her mom has been noticing that, you know, like she wanted her to be okay with feeling these, all the feelings that, you know, you have. And so she kind of kept trying, but also she wasn't, you know, forcing it. She was letting, she was letting her, did tell her when she was ready and somehow, you know, she became ready with this book, um, which was, you know, really kind of just amazing for me to hear. Um, so, but I think it was a good example of like, you know, like that, yeah, they'll, they'll
0: come back and they'll come to it,
1: you know, when, when they're, they're ready, when they're ready. To. When they're ready yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, we have a couple minutes left, so I don't, I want to make sure, sh- you know, let's talk about, mm-hmm. uh, where we can buy the book, Amazon, Bookstores everywhere, online. Yeah, I Actually, books. I have your website. We can go to your website to find out what you're do- about the book, but to find out about you as well. So, your website is KarenLevis.com, dot com. C a r o n l e v i s dot com. And so, any other websites that we should uh, you know go to to find out about you and your.
1: That's really the book. best way to that I Also,
0: it? there's, you know, I'm on
1: Facebook. Um, I have an author page there, but certainly my website. And, um, and if anybody's interested and also in knowing when the guide is out, if you, I do, um, I have a blog on my website and a newsletter that is just monthly. And if you sign up for that, you'll, I'll be able to let you know when it's when it's there. Um, and I also kind of like to send out some, um, just I like to write about other sort of social emotional you know, educational things that I'm learning and that I like to pass on and things like that.
0: Well, you're doing a great <laughs> yeah, job, you'd... and I recommend the book for everyone. It's a great book. It really is. Um, and uh, the title of the book, Ida Always, Karen Levis, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It was great talking to you. Thank and, you so much for having me. I really and good it. luck with your MSW. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. You're going to be a great professor and a great social worker, so there you go. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In a College Coach Conversation.
2: The
0: Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to Katherine Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Guggenheim Fellow and author Ellen Feldman. Her book that we're going to be discussing today is Terrible Virtue, Virtue and Novel. Uh, this is the, a novel about the life of Margaret Sanger. Um, and it's been described as this author's latest provocative novel, which shares the story of one of the most fascinating and influential features of figures of the 20th century, and that is Margaret Sanger. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Ellen.
2: Good morning, Catherine. I'm delighted to be here.
0: <laughs> yep, and I was. it was delightful reading your book. I, you know, I downloaded it on my iPad and uh, one of those couldn't put it down. Uh, Margaret Sanger, this is fiction, but it's social history at the same time, I guess. It's, it's based, obviously, on her life. I kept kind of making, looking back and seeing and going back to, I don't know, Wikipedia or wherever my information came from to see what, how, whether the novel followed her life historically exactly, does it?
2: It does. Uh, I stick to the facts. I always, I, this is not the first time I've written a novel about an historical character. And I, I wrote this as fiction because Margaret Sanger was a fascinating woman. I mean, she changed the world. She really did. She, more, more than any other individual, she shaped the sexual landscape and social landscape in many ways that we inhabit today. Uh, but she was also a mass of contradictions. She was arrogant and insecure, both ruthless and altruistic. Amazingly, she she worked all her life to make life better for all women, but she was fiercely competitive with individual women. Um, She loved her children very much, but she was not a good mother, and she ended up knowing the worst heartbreak a parent can know. With all these contradictions, I really wanted to get at what made her tick and for that, really, only fiction will work. You have, to, you have to stick to the facts, but you have to try to burrow in to her mind and heart, which is what I try to do with the book.
0: So how do you do that as, a, as an author?
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> the yes. um, I, um I worked on this book off and on for 10 years. I worked on it longer and harder than any book I've ever published. Uh, I started it more than 10 years ago. I put it aside three times and wrote three other books in the interim, but I couldn't because she was so fascinating and so complicated, I couldn't give her up. She wouldn't let me go. And I think you just keep circling back. One of the issues for me, one of the ways I think I found my way into her is I was getting lost because of the fact and because I had done so much research. I was getting lost in the minutiae of Margaret Sanger's life. And With fiction more than any other literary form, what you leave out is as important, sometimes more important, than what you put in. And not until the third time I came back to this did I step back and say, wait a minute, stop getting lost on, then she did this, then she did that. It's the, what I call the, if I learned it, you're going to read it syndrome. So I backed off, and I started to think about her as a woman, and why did she do this? You know, what made her make this choice? What made her make this very bad choice? What made her keep fighting after she went to prison? And once you begin to kind of burrow into her mind that way and imagine yourself in her shoes, then you begin to... I, I think you know, penetrate the personality. Now that said, I admit that my Margaret Sanger might not be everybody's Margaret Sanger. Although um, there's a, a, one of the biogra- one of her biographers, uh, read my book and, and you know was was very positive about it and very enthusiastic. So I hope I've gotten as close to her as fiction can get. Well, I know that you,
0: uh, you know, I was looking at the acknowledgments in the book, and you uh, also um, conferred with or with her grandson, Alex Sanger, who actually I went to school with. Um, And so he, I mean, he must have had something to say about his grandmother. Did he know her or?
2: Oh, he knew her. Um, it was interesting. He, she was, as I said, she was a very, she, I I hate to say she wasn't a good mother. She failed many ways as a mother, but, but that doesn't mean she didn't try and wasn't good in, in her own way. Um, but she had a difficult relationship with her children, uh, especially when, I think, when they were small. She was just never around. But her grandchildren, she had a much better relationship with her grandchildren. They liked her. She was great fun. She, this was a woman who was enormously charismatic to adults, children, everyone. She was irresistible. The interesting thing is, as Alex said, she would say she was coming to visit for a week, and after a day or two, she'd have to leave. So she really didn't. Love being around. You know, some people just enjoy children and some people don't, and she didn't. He had but Ellen, do you think you story. can
0: do both, given, I mean, what she was able to accomplish and in the time and the area in which she did it? Could she, can you, I mean, she couldn't be with her children and or her grandchildren and also do everything that, that she did in her profession and,
2: you know, what, you know, she, as you said, she was a game changer. Um, I mean, could she have exactly, done, Yeah. That's such a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Some people are offended that she wasn't a better mother. Women who change the world are not usually hands-on mothers. Women who are very interested in raising their children and being there all the time don't go out and change the world. Now, the the really interesting thing, I mean, this is not a hard, as you just said, this is a pretty obvious fact. Um, The really interesting thing is we never blame men. For not being hands-on fathers, you know, men who changed the world, great men. We never blame them for not being excellent fathers who were always around. Um, maybe a little bit more now, but not much, and certainly not then. Whereas we're very quick to say, well, she, you know, yes, she did good things out in the world, but she was, you know, she failed as a mother. And I think, you know, this is one more gender issue that we have to deal with. Yeah, I would
0: agree with you. And and if you think of the time that you know, she was doing her work, I guess, in what, 1912, 1913? Yes. 19, yeah. Um, I, I guess it amazed me. I mean, I I, I just, I, I, as I said, I couldn't put the book down. I, I guess the question is, where do you think all that strength came from? I mean, did you get a sense of, I mean, she grew up in this poor family, what, 13 children in the family? Her mother would, I mean, she saw her own mother just being a, a slave to her children and actually you know withering away to nothing yes. I guess right
2: um, her mother died at 50 and her father who did not believe in any kind of family limitation lived to be 88 um, so she did see this it's an interesting question where her strength comes from I think uh, I think a great deal of it came from watching her mother and seeing the injustice of this situation and there were four she had three sisters there were four Higgins girls Higgins was her maiden name I think they were all pretty tough cookies and knew what they wanted um, we know more about them than we do about the sons of the family, um, and I think this is, you know, nature nurture. Who knows with this? But I think that it was what she, what she, the world she grew up in, what she saw, what she wanted, and also I just think she had a, a very strong temperament and constitution. I, I think you know a, lo- a lot of times we cannot account for that, but she just uh, was was very directed and, and, and very passionate about her this is interesting. She believed in science and technology, obviously, mother birth control, but she believed in it with religious fervor. It was almost like a calling to her. Maybe not almost, it was a calling to her. And after seeing, you know, what had happened to her mother, and then also working in the slums and seeing these poor women dying of childbirth you know, yearly childbirths and uh and botched illegal abortions, you know, this, this fired her passion even more.
0: Well, when I think of her and what she was doing then, if you're talking, you know, as you're talking, as we're discussing it, um, and how she was able to go on, and then I think about, you know, what's happening today and, you know, uh, defunding Planned Parenthood, for instance, or, or uh, trying to do that. We're still doing this. Are we still wrestling with the same issues yes. that Margaret Sanger was wrestling oh, with? Yeah, in the twi- we yeah.
2: certainly are. I had it was a surreal experience doing the research for this book because I'd get up in the morning, bring in the paper, uh, read, be reading the paper with my morning coffee. Then I'd go to the library or the archives. I was reading the same headlines from a hundred years ago. It was unbelievable, and I. Uh, Margaret Sanger uh, has been, she, time has not dealt kindly with her. In some senses, she's been forgotten. Um, I had an interesting experience when I was at the New York Public Library, and I filed a slip for one of her books, Margaret Sanger, and my handwriting is not particularly good. So the young woman said, oh, is this Margaret Sawyer? And I said, no, it's Margaret Sanger. And then I looked at her and I said, do you know who Margaret Sanger is? She said, no. And I probably should have stopped there, but I didn't. I said, well, it's because of Margaret Sanger that women have access to birth control in this country. And she did not know that. Now, her being forgotten is bad enough, but her work has been undone, essentially. We have a Supreme Court battle right now, not about abortion. Margaret Sanger espoused birth control because she hoped to make abortion obsolete. She espoused birth control, that was her solution to the problem. And we have, the Supreme Court heard two weeks ago, arguments to, not only to defund, they didn't hear arguments to defund Planned Parenthood, they heard arguments against the uh, Affordable Care Act, man, not even the mandate to provide birth control, but the excuse, the, the opt-out form, the single-page opt-out form for providing birth control. So this is there's still a battle in this country against birth control, which as I said, Margaret Sanger saw as a way to make abortion unnecessary and obsolete.
0: But I think the powers that be, it seemed to me, at least um, with Margaret Sanger, was they equated birth control and abortion as the same thing, or at least the physicians at that time and the politicians. Maybe we still do that today. I'm not sure. But
2: um... uh, Well, it's interesting. I mean, many, many people... Did not know the difference. Even physicians did not know the difference at that time. I think you have a very, you have an excellent point here. People know the difference now technically, but I think it's it's a very wavy line, and people tend to associate them. And when does one drift into the other? Um, It and it's it's very much fraught with, I think, a male view of women's morality. when Margaret Sanger lobbied Congress to change the laws to make birth control legal in the 19, tw- late 1920s and early, thir- actually in the 30s, um, many of the, uh, the legislators she lobbied were horrified. They said, "But if we take away the fear of birth control, fear of pregnancy, women will behave as badly as men," which I thought was an hysterical line. <laughs> and and this went on and on. Um, and the interesting thing is, in 19, not until 1956 did the Supreme Court rule that states could not deprive married couples of contraception because it was an invasion of their privacy. Their right to privacy said they had a right to contraception. It took seven more years to say that unmarried women had a right to contraception. So this would indicate there's more going on here than women's health and women's rights. There's, something, there's some view of women's morality that, to my mind, is jaundiced. I think it's morality in itself. And, um, and
0: Margaret had all these. Uh, I'm going, taking the book, your uh,
2: novel, literally, but
0: with all. You can uh, about.
2: I know what you're driving all at, and you can. Affairs. I was, Actually, I was about quite that.
0: jealous. I thought, my God, she's been with all these fascinating men, and uh, she it, it, a lot had to do with power, doesn't it have to do with. I mean, it does have to do with power. If you if women have control over their own bodies and they don't have to have children or they can limit the number of children, then it puts them in a more powerful position, uh, you know, or equal position with men.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, When I said earlier on that she made not only a sexual revolution but a social revolution, it's because of her that women have social, economic, and personal freedom that they never dreamed of in those days. She always dreamed of it, but they didn't, um, because, as you just said, if you can't control your pregnancies, you can't plan your education, you can't plan your career, uh, you can't do anything. You're tethered to the home and children, and you're at men's mercy, which is something Margaret Sanger was never about to be. No. <laughs> Yeah, she never was. But also, and then there's
0: the the, the social issue in terms of she was battling that the women, the upper classes, the women who had money, um, seemed to only have one, two, or three children because they did practice birth control and they did have access to it, and their physicians even uh, gave them access to it, which poor women didn't have or were not allowed.
2: Yeah. Um, Technically, when she started out on her crusade, contraception was illegal for women. Doctors could, preserve, pre- pre- could prescribe it, but only for men and only to, pre- to prevent disease.
0: Ellen, we, I asked you the question, we're talking about birth control, and birth control at the time of Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of contraceptives and the mother of birth control um, in our country and actually around the world, um, birth control was actually illegal for women at that time, wasn't it? I mean, men were, as you were saying, men were allowed to use birth control to prevent venereal disease, but women were not allowed to to purchase birth control or
2: use birth control. Exactly. It was illegal for women. Uh, and uh, women with private doctors who could afford a private doctor could often get some form of contraception. But women in tenements, women in the countryside who, who could least afford a child every year could simply not, had no access to birth control. And this is what Margaret Sanger was working to provide. I mean, she saw the toll it took. She, she was a nurse in the tenements of the Lower East Side of New York City, and she saw the toll it took on these women. Uh, the toll it took on children as well, that these children were, you know, sickly, um, underfed, had to go out to work. Very very young, um, and she wanted to put an end to that. She she wanted every child to be wanted to be loved, um, and that was that was her her goal here to make birth control legal and accessible. The interesting thing is, it took her, oh, the better part of half a century, to make it uh, to make birth control access- legal and accessible to women. It still was not easily accessible to women in the countryside where they had no access to doctors, where they had only outhouses to women in the slums where there might be one birth, one bathroom for two floors in a tenement building. She dreamed of something very easy and simple, you know, a magic shot, a pill, something like this. And people said, dream on. And she insisted, no, we, you know, we have vaccines against whooping cough, diphtheria, all sorts of things. Why can't we have one against, against uh, conception? And uh, to this end, she put together a bold scientist, Gregory Pincus, and um, a forward-thinking philanthropist with million, many millions, Catherine, McCormick, Catherine Dexter McCormick. And uh, in 1960, the pill went on the market, thanks to her behind-the-scenes maneuvering.
0: When you use the word maneuvering, I was thinking about this... Uh, you know, as she wrote in the book, I mean, she knew how to, what she had to do in order to, to accomplish what she needed to accomplish. She got the, the wealthy women on the Upper East Side to uh, help finance her work and also to promote her work. And she kind of, she knew the, the men to connect with and the politicians and, you know, it, it's always amazing to me how she, did that and how she didn't get discouraged along the way. I mean, it was just a, you know, a constant... Uh, she was in jail, wasn't
2: she, at one point?
0: Or oh, yeah, in jail. more than one point, yes. Yeah. She was
2: in jail a couple of times. She, um, it's interesting that she kept going. She was very tiny about... Where, you know, where the power lay and how to get to it. Um, Her sister, who worked with her for a long time and went on a hunger strike uh, when she went to jail too, was always resentful of Margaret's association with the people with power and money because they were poor girls and her sister Ethel was resentful. Margaret said, no, they're the people who can get things done. We have to cultivate them. She was also ambivalent herself about her second husband had a lot of money. He bankrolled the the movement, and uh, she was always ambivalent within her actual position. If you're poor, and you suddenly have, you know, how do you feel about both sides of this question? Um, but she was she was very good about about that.
0: I, I think what we're saying about Margaret Sanger is that uh, she was a pragmatist. She was able to, as you say, bring all of these groups together, and uh, even marrying someone who was going to sort of further her cause, but was criticized, or her sister and others were critical of her for doing it, but she probably couldn't have accomplished what she did if she hadn't done that.
2: Exactly. She never could have if she if she hadn't been a pra- as you say, a pragmatist. Um she there's a wonderful quote for her from her. It was simple. I knew I was right. And I think that kept her going all the time. And she was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we we agree on that, yes. yes. And I'm gonna read one quote before
0: we say goodbye because we only have uh, a couple minutes left, but I think this is a quote that uh Well, this came from Margaret Sanger. A woman's body belongs to herself alone. It does not belong to the United States of America or any other government on the face of the earth. Enforced motherhood is the most complete denial of a woman's right to life and liberty. So um, that quote really, I think, uh, says it. Um, in terms of what she's done and all her work, um, you know, we, tell us what websites we can go to to connect with your book. I know we can buy it on Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. You can download it on your iPad, which is what I did. Um, so, to get more information about you and and the uh, and your novel,
2: yes. Well, uh, my website is www.ellenfeldman.com. E l l e n F e l d m a n, and there are some wonderful. Um, articles about Margaret Sanger there, some photographs of Margaret Sanger of her being gagged when the city fathers of Boston wouldn't let her speak um, of the clinic itself. She opened the clinic, which was illegal then in 1916 uh, in Brooklyn uh, for mothers, and there's a wonderful photograph of all the mothers lined okay. up to get free birth control. It wasn't free actually to get well, birth control.
0: And we will go to that. I have to, sorry we have to cut you off, but uh, yes. yeah, Great information, and uh, get out there and... Uh, and uh, and get the book Terrible Virtue. Uh, Ellen Feldman, thank you so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.